welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Al Franken, Counterspin, Slate, Politically Direct, Tom Hartman, and the Young Turks. Here's something funny. Uh, this is O'Reilly. Um, he uh, he's crazy. He's just kind of crazy. This is uh, this is him going after uh, uh, Cynthia Tucker, who is uh, and, and I think the head of the editorial page for the Atlanta Constitutional Journal. She's great. She's great. Okay. And uh, so he mocks her here for saying, if you, I mean, it's very clear what, she, what he's mocking her for, for saying that some conservative talk show hosts have said there's a war on Easter. And as you're listening, try to imagine what the punchline is going to be of our playing this. Yeah, we're going to play a different tape. That'll be, that's, it's too big. Am I giving too big a clue? I don't think so. Oh, okay. People. Okay, so this is uh, him on the 13th, uh, that's last week. Of, uh, of April. Another threat from conservative Christians. That is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. Now, I really got to thank the far-left Atlanta Journal-Constitution and its editorial writer, Cynthia Tucker. Madam, you continue to give me A-line material, and I appreciate it. Just in time for Holy Week and Passover, Ms. Tucker writes an editorial entitled, Hippity Hoppity Easter Hypocrites. Quote, it's a bit surprising to hear conservative talk radio rush to the defense of the Easter bunny and Easter eggs. Rabbits and eggs, after all, have never been Christian symbols. Still, fresh from their holy war against holiday trees and the fat guy in the red suit, talk show hosts are taking up arms in defense of an embattled Easter, which they claim is under attack by the same political correctness that supposedly menaced Christmas trees and Santa. Okay, let's walk through this nutty diatribe. First of all, there is no attack on Easter. Only two dumb incidents, one in St. Paul, Minnesota, where a secretary was asked to take down decorations featuring the Easter Bunny, and one in Georgia where an Easter event was changed to a spring event after pressure it's back to an Easter event. So unlike Christmas, the secular left has avoided fostering Easter controversies this year, and that's a good thing. Okay, so there he's saying, Cynthia Tucker, what are you talking about? You're crazy. No one, no one on the right is saying that there's a war against Easter. What kind of, who would say such a thing? Thank you for giving me A-line material, you left, you far left uh, uh, Atlantic Journal person. Person. Okay, so here, here is O'Reilly two days previous. <laughs> Back to follow-up segment tonight, although some left-wingers in the media deny it, we have documented a number of cases where Christian holidays, like Christmas and Easter, have been attacked by secular interests. Lawsuits and corporate policies have proved this point over and over again. He's nuts. <laughs> Maybe it was a different O'Reilly? I mean, there could be a multiple personality thing going on. There could be... Uh, this was two days before that. Then, on Friday... I guess that was the 13th of the Thursday. the Thursday. So so the next day, they repeated, because <laughs> I guess he, he must have taken a break, a little break, and he deserves it. Works hard. It was Good Friday, too. It was Good, good Friday, Friday, of course, of course. Bill deserves a break on Good Friday. So they played the first one again. <laughs> Man, 
I guess, I, I guess uh, consistency is the hobgoblin <laughs> of small minds. So, good for him. Finally, on his April 11th Fox News TV show, Bill O'Reilly turned to one of the things that he loves to hate, the Air America Radio Network. The hook for O'Reilly's comments was the announcement that the Liberal Radio Network CEO was being named vice chair of the company and a new CEO was being sought. O'Reilly framed that news this way, quote, Air America CEO Danny Goldberg has been replaced as the death watch continues on that ridiculous network. The radical radio fest is being propped up by far-left millionaires because it cannot make enough money to support itself. The federal elections people should look into Air America because it is obviously not a viable commercial enterprise. It is simply there to help liberal political candidates. So according to O'Reilly, if a media outlet doesn't make money, then it ought to be investigated by the government as a possible violation of election laws. That would be bad for O'Reilly's boss, Rupert Murdoch, who, in addition to owning Fox News Channel, owns the New York Post, an outspoken conservative newspaper that loses an estimated 15 to $30 million a year. That would seem to make it obviously not a viable commercial enterprise. No doubt Bill O'Reilly will be calling in the feds any day now. The Mouth versus the Bully, the Olbermann-O'Reilly Feud, written by Jack Schaefer. An entertaining history of American journalism could be written based on its feuds, which detonate with the frequency of Baghdad car bombs. As the saying goes, it's not that people in the press have thin skins, it's that they have no skin. Famous grudges have pitted William Randolph Hearst against Joseph Pulitzer, Alexander Coburn against Abe Rosenthal and Norman Podhoritz, Walter Annenberg against the entire liberal media, Jim Bellows against Ben Bradley, Ben Bradley against Al Newharth, Ted Turner against Rupert Murdoch, The New York Post against The Daily News, and Walter Winchell against Sissy Patterson, Ed Sullivan, Time Magazine, Whitaker Chambers, Westbrook Pegler, Drew Pearson, and the entire known universe. Modern news organizations prevent bad blood from splattering with its former velocity, muffling as they do disputes between journalists or media moguls. But one recent exception is the current on-air tiff between MSNBC's Keith Olbermann and Fox News Channel's Bill O'Reilly, who share the weekday 8 p.m. time slot. Over the top and nasty, the rumble evokes some of the nastiest pissing matches in journalistic history. As if set on an elementary school playground, the Olbermann-O'Reilly feud sets the sassy class wit against the bruising class bully. Nicholas Lemon's recent piece in The New Yorker pegs O'Reilly's height at six foot four, and the big mook probably weighs in excess of 225 pounds. Often, when interviewing guests in the studio, O'Reilly leans into them from across his table, squinting like Clint Eastwood and finger-jabbing in the direction of their chests as if his next move might be a punch or a thrown brick. He browbeats, accuses, dismisses, and intimidates like a young ruffian. Olbermann is big, too, bragging about his size 14 feet on the air. But it's his wit and his eyes, not the threat of a sucker punch, that do the damage. Cut down artist supreme, he has said of nemesis O'Reilly, if he didn't do personal attacks, he would be a mime. 
such as Olbermann's appetite for inflicting psychic pain on O'Reilly, that if the two men were transported back to their youths and dropped onto a playground, I suspect that every day O'Reilly thrashed Olbermann for his insolence, Olbermann would come back the next day in pretty bandages and taunt the bully anew. The feud goes back to May 5, 2003, if not further, when Olbermann quipped at the close of a segment on Senator Joe McCarthy's media manipulations, quote, So it was all programmed to look for fish to shoot in the barrel. Oddly, that's also how they programmed Bill O'Reilly's show, unquote. That slam is overly political, encouraging the audience to think of O'Reilly as a nutbag fascist and not a self-styled populist. But O'Reilly and Olbermann's feud is almost always more about style than it is politics. For example, Olbermann has repeatedly taken to declaring O'Reilly today's worst person in the world, but for crimes of hypocrisy, pomposity, and poor taste more than anything else. Nor was O'Reilly attempting to score political points in late January when he used the opening minutes of the O'Reilly Factor to whine about NBC's, read Olbermann's, cheap shots against him. When Olbermann returned fire on his show by doing a deadly O'Reilly impersonation, it was just another example of the smartass jeering at the bully. O'Reilly's February petition drive urging MSNBC to replace Olbermann with his time-slot predecessor, the liberal-liberal Phil Donahue, had nothing to do with the two men's political differences. Olbermann laughed and signed the petition. Likewise with Olbermann's regular zinging of O'Reilly over the October 2004 sexual harassment complaint filed against him by a Fox News Channel employee. References to the steamier pages in the sexual harassment suit have become such an integral part of Countdown with Keith Olbermann that all Keith needs to do to give his viewers a charge is raise his eyebrows and say loofah or falafel. So if the dispute isn't political, why do they persist? Nicholas Lemon's piece portrays O'Reilly as driven by class resentment, a sense of inferiority acquired as a byproduct of attending a minor college and his failure to connect with the big time while at CBS News. No matter how big a star he becomes, he's eternally the guy who was banished from the charmed circle. But rather than healing his injured vanity, O'Reilly's high-profile success at Fox seems to have increased his vulnerability. The upside is that he's the hero to his two million nightly viewers. The downside is that he's the maximum enemy of tens of millions, many of them the swells who wouldn't give him the time of day in his youth and early career. Olbermann, who graduated from Cornell, is just the ticket for O'Reilly's tortured ego. I'm sure that O'Reilly will reject my layman's analysis, but drop Olbermann on the same couch, and I venture that he'd accept my diagnosis that he's only happy professionally when he's goading somebody out of their gourd. In the past, Olbermann's Satans were his bosses, at ESPN primarily, and at MSNBC, where he did a previous tour of duty. In O'Reilly, Olbermann finds the perfect target of his sarcasm and sadism, somebody bigger and more powerful, somebody who takes his bait and runs every time he casts a line but also somebody who can't fire him or make him miserable enough to quit. That O'Reilly and Olbermann compete in the same time slot is pure gravy for Olbermann. That his ratings are up in recent months is a maraschino cherry on top of the gravy. Like Jack Torrance and the Overlook Hotel, Olbermann and O'Reilly have always been together, sassing and pummeling one another, and they always will be. If you're not happy for the feuding pair, you should be. That was The Mouth versus The Bully, written by Jack Schaefer. For Slate.com, I'm Andy Bowers. Your 
The New York Post is involved in another scandal. The latest episode finds Jared Paul Stern, a contributor to the paper's Page Six gossip column, under investigation for extortion. According to several news reports and supermarket mogul Ron Burkle, Stern solicited $220,000 from Burkle for protection against false or negative coverage in the column. Though no arrests have been made so far, the case is under investigation by the U.S. Attorney and the FBI. New York Observer columnist and Post critic Joe Connison says the Page Six affair is not exactly out of character. In his April 17th column, Post's scandal reflects the Murdoch method, Connison says Stern may only be following an example set by his boss, Rupert Murdoch. Joe Connison, welcome back to Counterspin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Joe, tell us how Stern's behavior, allegedly shaking down a subject, is similar to Rupert Murdoch's. Well, the aim of my column was to show that the behavior that's attributed to Page Six, and particularly to Jared Paul Stern, who has been there at the Post for 10 years, actually, really reflects a broader lack of ethical standards in News Corporation, and particularly in the way that Rupert Murdoch has used his media properties to reward and punish people uh, over the years. And I hark back all the way to 1980, when he wanted a loan from the federal government. He was still an Australian citizen then. He wanted a loan from the federal government, almost $300 million, to finance the purchase of Boeing jets by an Australian airline that he was a part owner of. And he went to Washington, met with uh, the head of the Export-Import Bank, which makes those loans, and then had lunch with President Carter, who was in the midst of a very furious uh, primary campaign against Senator Edward Kennedy. And the New York primary was coming up. And within days after Murdoch's meeting with President Carter, the Post endorsed Jimmy Carter for another term as president in the New York primary, urged Democrats to vote for him. I believe, as I recall, the endorsement was on the front page, which is kind of typical of the Post. And a few days after that, the Export-Import Bank loan came through for Murdoch to the tune of $290 million. So... That was all a coincidence. I mean, he later, Murdoch later testified under oath and before the Senate Banking Committee that that was all just a coincidence, but he admitted that it looked bad uh, and said he would never do anything like that again. But of course he did. He went on to use uh, book contracts as uh, the main kind of source of rewards for politicians that he wanted to curry favor with. I think you probably remember he gave a four and a half million or tried to give a four and a half million dollar book contract to Newt Gingrich within weeks after Gingrich became the House Speaker. It was one of the most bald um, attempts at a, at a bribe, really, that anybody's ever seen in journalism. I think Murdoch is is what my old and very much bereaved colleague Jack Newfield used to call on the give. He, he is rather than on the take. He he is constantly cutting big checks to politicians of every stripe. He uh, rather infamously bought a two-volume biography of Deng Xiaoping, the former Chinese dictator, from uh, which he gave a contract to Deng's daughter, Deng Rong, to write this terrible book about uh, Deng Xiaoping, a million dollars to her. At the same time, of course, that he's seeking broadcast licenses uh, and, and other kinds of favors from the Chinese government. So this goes on and on. There's example after example of this. Margaret Thatcher got uh, millions of pounds from the Murdoch organization while uh, 
having done many, many favors for him as prime minister uh, in the U.K. Uh, and, and it's just, it's, as Jared Stern says on the famous videotape, it's a little bit like the mafia. You're saying Murdoch re- has regularly traded favors. You've just given us uh, a small sample of those uh, in China. Of course, he traded favors with the government for withholding BBC coverage. He did that, and he also tried to suppress uh, Chris Patton's book about Hong Kong. Chris Patton was the former British uh, diplomat who was running Hong Kong uh, before it was turned over to China again. And Patton wrote a, a very good book about, about China and Hong Kong uh, that was supposed to be published by HarperCollins. And Murdoch suppressed it. It was published, it had to be published elsewhere because he didn't want to annoy the Chinese government. Well, Bill O'Reilly, who also works for Rupert Murdoch, recently said that Air America should be investigated by election officials because since it loses money, it's obviously, quote, simply there to help liberal political candidates, close quote. Perhaps the New York Post should be investigated on the same grounds. Joe Connison, how closely does O'Reilly's description of Air America match that of the New York Post? Well, O'Reilly's description of Air America is as you know, as, as close to reality as anything O'Reilly talks about. He's just an authoritarian who would like to shut up people he doesn't agree with. But if O'Reilly's formula were applied to his own, the company that he works for, there never would have been a Fox News channel, which lost hundreds of millions of dollars for years uh, before it, it started to break even, and therefore could have been considered to be subsidized by News Corporation for political purposes. And the same obviously goes for the Post, which loses... Uh, people estimate uh, $25 million a year or more, and has done so for decades, the entire time that Murdoch has owned it. I believe the Post has been losing a great deal of money. Like the Washington Times, by the way, uh, another right-wing outlet that has been subsidized probably to the tune of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, by uh, the Unification Church, Reverend Moon. So, and they're both hardball political players, too. Totally hardball political players. And if the test were making money none of them would ever have existed. So, you know, O'Reilly's remarks are to be taken as seriously as anything else he said. There are only a few United States senators who consistently been willing to stand up to this president when he blatantly lies, abuses the public trust, and as we've seen, even violates the law. My first guest is one of the few with the courage to say, not so fast, Mr. President. And he joins us now by telephone from Washington, D.C., Senator Tom Harkin. Welcome to Politically Direct. Hey, David, it's nice to be with you. And, and, and I just got at the beginning to say thanks for what you're doing, getting the truth out getting the facts out to people. We need more of this uh, in this country, I can tell you that. Well, you know, we appreciate the fact that there are very few of our elected representatives, uh, yourself included, uh, Barbara Boxer, uh, and, of course, Senator Russ Feingold, who've been willing to stand up and say what uh, you've actually written, a column that says, not so fast, Mr. President. Talk about why you've been willing to support this censure resolution. Well, you know, again, uh, time and time again, we have to remind ourselves and the American people and the president, whoever the president may happen to be, that no one's above the law, especially the president of the United States. And the fact is this president lied. He broke the law, violated the Constitution. And so what are we going to do? Are we just going to sit back and say nothing and do nothing, let him get by with it? If we let him get by with this, and I don't mean just Bush or any president get by with something like this, 
then it just encourages the next president to go a step further. And pretty soon, the freedoms and liberties we know as individuals in this country are gone. Well, it's ironic that this is the administration that's talking about exporting our freedoms abroad, taking them to Iraq, setting the model for freedom around the world, and yet the very principles that we're supposedly extolling as we go to other countries, we're not honoring here at home. You know, David, you're so right. I, as I travel around the world, I mean, people see through the hypocrisy of George Bush. I mean, we preach one thing as a country, and then we do what we're doing in Guantanamo, for example. Hold people for years without charges, hold them incommunicado, treat them badly in violation of the Geneva Code. Then we say, well, but they're not prisoners of war, so we don't have to abide by the Geneva Code. Well, if they're not prisoners of war, what are they? You know, just nothing. I mean, we just deal with them whatever the president wants. Whatever the president says is, is okay. So around the world, people are beginning to see the United States is taking a very hypocritical position. And I tell you, that's not good for us. Uh, uh, you know, I... We have always felt, I think, for a long time that the United States ought to stand as a, as a beacon of individual liberty, of individual rights, the rights of the individual against the government. And, uh, and we're losing that. We're losing that around the world. Senator, let me do a little truth in broadcasting here. You and I first met in 1992 when you ran for president. I had the privilege of helping you on your campaign, and uh, I want to say that, you know, had that campaign been successful, we might not be in this mess today. But unfortunately, we have the government that we have elected, and one of the things that, you know, we've seen now with these revelations from uh, this war policy and this president's war policy is something that uh, parallels, eerily parallels what you saw when you went to Vietnam in the early 70s, talking about uh, these prisoners in Guantanamo. Well, we've seen Abu Ghraib and the scandal at Abu Ghraib, but yet this is not unprecedented in our history and our alliances. We saw uh, you reported first back in, uh, was it 1970, the infamous tiger cages in South Vietnam? Well, David, that's right. Yeah, in 1970, I went to Vietnam as a staff member of a committee, and uh, through some luck and some fortitude and the courage of a couple of very brave Vietnamese, we were able to uncover these tiger cages, which maybe some of your listeners who are at least my age might remember. Uh, but it became a big turning point in the war because it pointed out that we, in conjunction with the so-called South Vietnamese government, which was just our puppet government, we're actually violating the Geneva Code ourselves. And we were holding people in, in prisons and beating people and torturing people. That had, had, And they were not combatants. They were simply people who were protesting the war and protesting their government in South Vietnam. And so what did we do? We rounded them up, beat them, tortured them, killed some of them, put the rest of them in these infamous tiger cages. Well, you know, we should have learned our lesson then. And that's my point, Senator. How is it possible, 35 years forward, that we're still having this debate? How is it possible that, is it, you know, and I, I, I admit my partisanship, it seems to me that it's, it's not a coincidence that this has happened under Republican presidents both times. But is it not something that we should have, as a nation, moved away from by this point? Yes, we should have. And we should have, uh, through the years, set up, you know, sort of what I would call checkpoints or or uh, trapdoor points where if a president starts to do things like this, then it triggers other actions. Uh, what I'm saying is that presidents always want to have more power. You know, that means presidents want more power. It's the nature of their being. The nature of their being. And, and then when you get to the Republican philosophy, which is that executives ought to have the most power. You know, Republicans have an inherent sort of philosophy that the king is right. And, you know, that 
They didn't seem to think that when Bill Clinton was president. Well, that's just it. It's only when their person's in. And that's the other thing, David. You know, here are the Republicans. You know, they can impeach, impeach a sitting president because that president lied about an extramarital affair. But when it comes to a president of their own party who lied about our war and getting us involved in war, who broke the law, who violated the Constitution in eavesdropping and spying on our own people, why, we can't even get the Democrats to stand up and have enough steel in their spine to say we got a century. Which actually brings me to my question. Where are the other Democrats? Some of your colleagues who we admire greatly, have, they've been on this program, uh, uh, Senator Kennedy, Senator Durbin, their colleagues of Senator Feingold's on judiciary, and they didn't show up for the century hearing. I don't know. I, you know, that's, that's why I'm trying to get some help here. I, 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 am, I will admit to I'm trying to get some help to tell my fellow Democrats, look, you can stand up. You can do this. You can get on board on this censure thing. I think that's where the American people are. I really believe that. And so what I've done, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you, Dave, I'm starting an online petition. No, please, tell us where. Okay, I'm starting an online petition. It's at www.tomharkin.com. So all one word, Tom Harkin, T-O-M-H-A-R-K-I-N.com. We're going to be out for the next two weeks uh, uh, session. I'm asking people to go there and sign a petition, an electronic petition. So when we come back, we can present this. I can take this to Democrats and say, look, don't be afraid. You can come out. You can be on this censure resolution, and you've got thousands and thousands of people behind you across the country. I guess what I'd like to ask is if your listeners could go to that site and just sign a petition. Yes, we support you censuring the president for his actions. We're going to put a link to that on our blog, politicallydirectradio.com. And, again, the direct link is tomharkin.com. i got to tell you, Senator, I remember uh, actually, I think it was um, during the uh, 2004 campaign early on, watching you do your very first blog post. It was at the uh, steak fry in Iowa. And that was the free. You've come a long way, Senator, uh, from, from starting a blog post to doing an online petition in, in three years. Yeah, I'm, I'm, starting, I'm, I'm getting into this electronic age finally, you know, David. Well, well, Al Gore may have invented the Internet, but, uh, you know, it's up to us to use it wisely. And, indeed, you know, one of the things that we found, and this is, you know, you and I were both a part of the Dean campaign. In fact, uh, I'm the last time I think I saw you, uh, you were walking on stage with Howard Dean that infamous night in Iowa. But indeed, what we saw from the Dean campaign, it may have lost, but it changed things in politics in a profound way in terms of involving people online and giving them an opportunity to express their voice and really show that the numbers are much greater than even the pollsters are able to gauge. Absolutely. That, that, that is one of the good things that came out of the Dean campaign. It'll, it'll never be the same again. And now... We have the means of reaching people that, that bypasses the paid, highly paid uh, advertisements and all the structures that are set up there. We can cut right through, and we can get to people, and we can energize people all over this country. And, and, and that's why I'm hopeful that when we move into the next rounds of elections and stuff, we can have a really solid, progressive block all over this country that's connected together online, which we can support each other where we can push the issues. We've got to make sure that the next campaigns we have in America, in which we really provide the American people an alternative view of what we're doing, a progressive view of what government ought to be like in this country. I think people are hungry for it. 
they don't get it through the regular media. You know, we raise millions and millions of dollars a campaign. It goes to these highly paid ad agencies, and they cut you a 30-second spot, and you can't get a message out of any depth or any substance. So this is where we can go. We can use the Internet. We can use the blogosphere. We can use this to really form a progressive block in this country. Counterspin often talks about media's skewed pundit spectrum, which allows for far-right voices like Sean Hannity and Pat Buchanan, but can't seem to find any true progressives to represent the left. Sometimes, though, the situation just gets a little absurd. Take Time Magazine's Jill Klein, a vocal supporter of the centrist Democratic Leadership Council. Klein frequently takes positions that place him far from the left end of any dial. In April 2004, for example, he wrote that the ideal step for Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry would be to pick hard-right John McCain as his choice for vice president and, quote, announce a government of national reconciliation composed of moderate Democrats and Republicans, close quote. More recently, Klein's rhetoric got downright vitriolic against the left, as Eric Alterman reported in his April 11th MSNBC.com column, at a Council of Foreign Relations discussion in Washington on U.S. relations with Latin America, an audience member raised a question about whether Democrats would be able to field an electable presidential candidate in 2008, to which fellow audience member Klein shouted, quote, Well, they won't if their message is that they hate America, which is what has been the message of the liberal wing of the party for the past 20 years, close quote. Of course, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but as Alterman points out, Klein represents the most liberal voice on Time's columnist roster. When the most liberal columnist Time can muster parrots right-wing talking points about the left, we just have to ask again, what liberal media? Right now, Jerome Armstrong and Marcus Molitas are, are with us in the studio, crashing the game. Jerome is uh, the blogger mydd.com, and Marcos is the, uh, the the blogger of Daily Codes, the dailycodes.com. And uh, you guys have a great new book out, Crashing the Gate, Networks, Grassroots, and the Rise of People-Powered people powered Politics. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank yeah, you. great to have you both here in the studio with us and uh, here in the in what uh, Papa Bush refers to as Little Beirut, also known as the People's Republic of Portland. This is actually also where we started, where Jerome and I first met and started working and plotting, taking over the world. Oh, really? That didn't work, so we went to Plan B, which was start some uh, blogs and, and integrate them with the Dean campaign and take over the party. How cool, how cool. Well, that's the, the, the focus of the book. There's really, uh, my sense of this book is that the, the, the grand arc of it is you start out by talking about the rise of political consultants and the damage that they've done in both parties in a way, and then how the Republican Party kind of shook their head and, and, and the scales fell off their eyes and they said, hey, wait a minute, and the Republican Party hasn't, or the Democratic Party hasn't done that. Uh, uh, Marcos, give us a, a snapshot of that. Well, we have a, uh, we have a party establishment that really is stuck back in the 60s. It's reliving the glory days when, when we made great gains in the environment and labor rights and women's rights. And they haven't realized that the world really has passed them by, and, and they refuse to evolve. 
On the other side, we have Republicans who are very, very efficient and, and uh, at keeping up to date with the latest technologies, with the latest tactics. And it's amazing, given how much the American people really, uh, really uh, are with the Democratic Party on almost every issue, down, down issue by issue, regardless of the fact that they think that, parties, that the country is going in the wrong direction, they still end up electing people like George Bush. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jerome, how is that? Well, our role, we've, we've been bloggers, but basically having front, re, front row seats to the disaster of the Bush Republican agenda over the last five years. And but what we've seen at the same time is the rise of people-powered politics within the Democratic Party and things like campaign finance reform that took away these million-dollar donations and made the party return to its roots and depend upon small donors. And we saw that with Howard Dean's campaign. But it's actually changing the Democratic Party. Yeah, for the better. It is, yes. It, but how do, how do guys like Bob Shrum, you know, not just to pick on Bob Shrum, I'm sure he's a very decent guy, but, you know, eight for zero, you said? Zero for eight. Zero right. for eight, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, well, that, I mean, how do these guys survive? You, you point out in the book, actually, I thought, I thought you know, it was a great point that when Republicans have consultants who fail in an election, they fire them. When Democrats have, Repub- have consultants who fail in an election, they, they keep them on for the next election cycle. And, in fact, you pointed out in the book they pay them differently. They do. The, the Democrat on the Democratic side, they still pay them by commissions, 15% of all media commissions. So when you get into a situation like Kerry's campaign, and, and we're literally doing hundreds of millions of dollars on television ads, we're paying absorbent sums to these media consultants. Plus, they have an incentive to generate media ads rather than any other form of, of outreach. It, you know, They don't yeah. get paid if, if people hit the streets and go door to door. They only get paid if an ad runs on TV. That seems crazy to me. And what it points towards is that the Democratic Party hasn't adjusted to the changing media landscape. But the Republicans actually pay their consultants a flat rate. They do, just like businesses do for consumer products. Yeah. We're stuck in these strategies of the 1980s. We're not, we haven't adapted. Yeah, we being the Democratic Party. Right. So, so the Bush campaign spent $6 million in 2004 election on media placement. They, uh, they uh, place over 50% more ads than, than Kerry campaign did. The Kerry people spent $11 million. We spent $5 million more on media placement than the Bush campaign, even though they spent a lot more. They, they, they placed a lot more ads. And now put that in perspective of people on Daily Coast and my DD saying, well, I don't need to eat tonight. Here's another $10 for John Kerry. Or, or my, my daughter can skip her violin lessons this month. So right. here's another 50 bucks. People sacrificing everything they could to try to win this election. And these consultants didn't care. They just wasted their money. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I used to own an app. I used to own an ad agency, and we would uh, we made a point of telling our clients that we were not taking commissions. We passed the commissions back to the clients on placing ads because we didn't want them to think that we were buying more expensive media just to jack up our profits. You would think they do that if they believed in the democratic principles. Yeah, but, but they're not doing it. So anyhow, <laughs> the, the book has this uh, a great summary of what people can do, how how we can get active, how we can take back the Democratic Party, and this is the yeah. absolute critical thing. It's getting involved at the very local level. You know, we talk about the problems that are in D.C. And what Howard Dean's done with the 50-state strategy is begin to push it back into the states, and, and really that's where the change is going to happen, people getting involved locally with the Democratic Party. Well said. Jerome Armstrong, Marcos Molitsas, the book Crashing the Gates, or Crashing the Gate, Netroots, Grassroots, and the Rise of People-Powered Politics. A marvelous analysis of what's really wrong and what really needs to be fixed in a structural and systemic way. Must read. A great book. Thanks, guys, for being here.
don't expect a whole lot from local TV news with its emphasis on crime, lurid infotainment, and so on. But the least you might expect is that a TV station would tell you when they were running government or corporate propaganda. A new report from the Center for Media and Democracy sheds considerable light on the use of what are called video news releases, or VNRs, prepackaged PR videos that are often made to look and sound like news reports. Joining us now to discuss what they found is the report's co-author, Daniel Price. Daniel, welcome to Counterspin. Thank you. Now, our listeners might recall that there was quite a dust-up over VNRs sometime last year. Yes. Give us a quick reminder about that and then how your study sort of advances that right. story. There were actually two dust-ups. The first one happened in March 2004 when it was revealed that the Department of Health and Human Services had used a advertising company to create a fake news piece around the prescription Medicare Prescription Drug Act. Mm-hmm. And that was the Karen Ryan Medicare VNR controversy that got a lot of coverage. A year later, the New York Times exposed 20 other government agencies who have used prepackaged news releases to advance agendas and points of view and basically promote things they want to promote. And that created another whirlwind. Now, both of these were related to government VNRs. And even back then, government VNRs accounted for maybe 5% of the total VNR population out there. The rest were from corporations, nonprofits, and generally private entities. Our report is strictly that realm. We spent 10 months tracking the video news releases from three major publicist corporations and monitored how they were used on local airwaves. And what we found were 98 separate instances of TV stations incorporating fake news into their broadcasts without a single hint of attribution to their viewers. How does a station do this? How does it look to a a viewer? A lot of times they will take an entire video news release, which is already a fully polished imitation news feature created by publicists, staffed by publicists, even narrated by publicists. And you you could barely tell the difference if you just looked at it by itself. And so what these news directors do is they will take this complete thing and drop it into their newscast as if it was their own. Do stations ever add any content or anything they might consider reporting to a VNR? In 92% of cases, the station built their entire story out of just the information presented in the VNR. And I understand on some occasions there is a person who you might think is a reporter reporting the story who's actually a publicist. Exactly, and the station will introduce them as if they were local reporters. So instead of just saying, and now here's a, you know external news producer, here's a publicist, which of course they can't say, like Sonia Martin has the story mm-hmm. without telling you who Sonia Martin is or the fact that she works for one of the biggest media PR firms in New York. Now, the defense a TV station might offer is, well, we usually or we try to disclose the the source of this information. The study seems to suggest that they almost never do. Yeah, we just kind of blew the lid off that excuse. <laughs> it's, uh, we just had too many instances. I mean, in the 98 instances we found, only two even attempted to offer disclosure. And in both those cases, they still didn't reveal the funding source behind the stories. Now, TV stations have obviously some First Amendment protections for what they can do with their time, but there must be some legal limits here to what they can do with a video news release. Well, the First Amendment gives you the right to use your voice. It doesn't give you the right to throw your voice. And, you know, when you have an unlabeled VNR, that's really, it's nothing better than ventriloquism. You know, it's a corporation getting their message out through the credibility of a journalist. Mm -hmm. Now, the FCC does have requirements about disclosure. 
they, they put it out in April 2005 public notice in response to the government VNR controversy. The public notice reminded stations that under the Federal Communications Act of 1934, they were obligated to disclose the source of all external material. Now, so much of this seems surprising, but did anything jump out at you in doing this this report? Lots of stuff jumped out at me. For starters, we've got big, big stations. There was a misconception that we had, or that a lot of people had, that VNRs were mostly limited to small stations with small budgets. Mm-hmm. We've got stations. We've got the third biggest station in the country, WCBS in New York. we got stations in three in Los Angeles, two in Chicago. You know, every major city, more or less, we got big market stations uh, deceptively using VNRs. It doesn't matter if they're from South Bend, Indiana, or, you know, New York. They use VNRs the same way. Now, I assume when most people hear stories like this, the first question they ask is often, what can I do about this? Is there some action you're suggesting people can take? Well, there's two things you can do. Is One, you can contact the FCC. And if you go to www.prwatch.org, we have a whole recommendation section and a whole get involved section that gives you detailed information about how you can contact the FCC. Another thing you do is contact your local station. We have on our website, the same website, full station information, including contact numbers and exact dates and times of their VNR usage. You can just make call and make an informed complaint. The third thing is that there is a our the organization who's been working with us, Free Press, has a public action campaign, and that's available on the website also. So there's lots of things people can do to help generate outrage about this. And have you heard back from any of the stations who you've studied? Boy, have we. <laughs> They're, they're not happy. One of them called to demand that we retract their inclusion in our report because they claimed that their use of VNR was an accident. <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Daniel Price. He's co-author of the new report, Fake TV News, Widespread and Undisclosed. You can read about it and what to do about it at prwatch.org. Daniel Price, thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much, Peter. Speaking of funny, here's another great story for you guys. For the, all the people who were really pissed about the Clinton impeachment trial, you're going to love this story. Richard Malinscafe was a right-wing financier who gave $2 million to the quote-unquote Arkansas Project that specifically went out to try to... I don't think it's quote-unquote. I think that's what they that's what he, they called it. Yeah, that's why it's in quotes. <laughs> Uh, they give $2 million to, for people to go dig up dirt on Clinton. Right, wrong, didn't matter. He just wanted dirt on him. They just wanted to smear him. In fact, in the beginning of the Arkansas Project, they were investigating the Vince Foster suicide and whether it was actually a murder. Okay, These people are sick people. And they said, go dig up whatever dirt you can. He used one of his magazines, the American Spectator, which he'd given over $3 million to before. So they were his henchmen, and they had to do what he did. David Brock, funny enough, now one of the big liberals, was involved in this from the get-go because he did Troopergate. Now, a lot of the things were unsettling to him, so he decided not to do some of them, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so they get this money, and that's what leads to Paula Jones. That's what leads to Monica Lewinsky. That's what leads to all this nonsense, even though... Uh, what did the Arkansas Project eventually find out? Nothing. Zero. The Whitewater was nothing. Travelgate, whatever. All those things they tried to dig up. Uh, Travelgate was in D.C. But all the things they tried to dig up in Arkansas, absolutely nothing, right? The Rose but, Law Firm overbuilt some clients. Oh, wow. Ooh, that's the first time a law firm has ever overbuilt anybody. Uh, so what happens is 
uh, at least Paula Jones, which Lisa Monica Lewinsky, and then they impeached Monica, uh, Bill Clinton for an extramarital affair. Uh, so, but Richard Mellon escapes conservative, so he's at least got family values, and he would never have any troubles with his family. Oh no, Richard! Oh no, Richard! Tell me you didn't have troubles with your family. Tell me you don't live in a glass house and you threw all those stones at the president. You threw a $2 million stone at the president because he had troubles with his family. Tell me you don't have any troubles with your family, Richard. Please, please, Mr. Family Values, tell me you don't have any trouble. If you don't reveal it soon, I'm going to leave. <laughs> Turns out, of course, Richard Melescafe is now divorced for the second time. Who would have guessed? Really? Two different wives, both of them divorced your sorry ass. And now his wife goes back and it starts this huge fight over a dog and it's daily news in New York is reporting. I don't give a damn about the specifics of the fight, but it's a mess. And Scape, who never gives interviews, is giving an interview about this and he says, Ah, yeah, I screwed up and I didn't get a prenup. Oh, I love it. I love it. He has $1.2 billion war chest that he uses to smear Democrats with his family values crap, right? Although he's gotten, he's destroyed his family twice over apparently. Right? So now all of a sudden he's in trouble with his family, and all of a sudden he's going to lose out war chest at 50%. You like, the, you like your $1.2 billion? Well, too bad. Now you're down to $600 million. So throw another $2 million stone at the next Democratic Party. See what happens, Scafe. <laughs> Clown. But uh, no evidence of an affair, right? Uh, psh, you think he didn't cheat on her? Of course he did. Of course he did. Of course. The question is is it girls or boys? That's the only question. <laughs> okay. Look, I don't know. I don't know anything about Richard Melonscape. I don't care if he cheated on her. She cheated on him. I don't care. And do I care that he got divorced twice? In reality, a human being gets divorced. Whatever. It's your personal life. I don't care. But you don't go around throwing stones like that unless you got your shit in order. Okay? Well, I, I, and I, he did not have his stuff in order, Mr. Family Frickin' Values. No, I hear Let's you. do an Arkansas project on your ass, Richard Melonscape. See what we come up with. Yeah, well, that's different. I mean, then then then, you, then you'd come up with some good stuff. I have no doubt, you know. Uh, but uh, no, look, he's a bad guy. He's a really bad guy, and he started that. But there's only one person who took it from Paula Jones to Monica Lewinsky, uh, and that's Ken Starr. Are you kidding me, Richard Melescafe? I, I wonder where do you look for? Is Scafe the guy who owns Pepperdine, doesn't he? Pepperdine University. Who gave him the job? Yeah, he gave, gave Ken Starr a job after he left. He gave him a cushy job as a, uh, the, the, the dean of the law school of Pepperdine. <laughs> oh, Jay, I wonder how, why Ken Starr was so motivated to bring it from Paula Jones to Monica Lewinsky. I'm sure Richard Malinscape had nothing to do with it. I'm sure. Just probably a wild coincidence. And then he winds up hiring Ken Starr at a cushy job for God knows how much money. I don't think he, yeah, he is. Uh, he's given uh, millions and millions of dollars to uh, uh, to to, uh, to Pepperdine. Uh, okay. All right. Now, oh, but it's probably a wild coincidence, though, that uh, Ken Starr got uh, hired by Escapes University over Pepperdine. Okay. Hey, listen. Uh, I hope uh, you got enough uh, money to keep uh, Ken Starr going as the dean of Pepperdine University because you're about to lose half. <laughs> I like and, and I couldn't be happier. There's not a divorce proceeding in the country that makes me happier than this one. And you know me. Normally, I'm on the other side. So what does she ever do to deserve half this guy's money, right? No, but you, whoever you are, let's, let's find her name. Margaret Richie Scafey. God bless. Go for it. God bless. Go for it. Take half. Take 75%. Take whatever you can of this hypocritical bastard. Uh -huh. He says, oh, I'm sure some of my enemies will be gloating. Oh, Richard, you got that right. You got that right. I think any woman who has to have sex with Richard Millenscape deserves $600 million. <laughs> Fair enough. Young Turks.
Thanks for listening, everybody. Just a little reminder of all the ways you can get involved with the show. Join the Best of the Left community at frapper.com. Add me to your MySpace page as a new friend. Write a review in iTunes. Vote and leave comments at Podcast Alley. Take my listener survey and donate to my tip jar. All of these links are available at the homepage at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Have a good one, everybody.